Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 65 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, how's your bracket? What, what bracket? Uh, <laughs> we're, just, uh, we're already past oh, it. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's great because I had Texas women's basketball definitely going to the Sweet 16 <laughs> and, and indeed beyond that, and they're, they're looking great. Did you have the UConn women scoring 94 points in the first half? Did you have the Amherst College women's basketball team <laughs> finishing off an undefeated season with their back-to-back national championship for Division Three? Congratulations. Uh, Steve, the, the important thing is that we both wisely decided we wouldn't make any predictions for the men's bracket, of no, course. No, and, no and happily, there's no evidence to prove otherwise, none, right? None. Right. Uh, you deleted last week's episode, right? What? Oh, yeah, that was on. That was on? <laughs> All right, so listen. Uh, it, may, it may have been the worst bracket, the worst set of predictions I think I've ever been associated with, so I have zero credibility. Oh, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> listen, we have a lot to do today, but I thought we would start by talking about what's actually been going on in our neck of the woods. Um, we received a lot of uh, both concerned emails and tweets and, and well-wished emails and tweets. It's been a pretty scary couple of weeks here in Austin. Um, apparently this morning, the... Austin bombing issue came to a denouement with the apparent suspect blowing himself up. So apparently the worst is over. Yeah, no, this is, a, in, in my view, a very happy ending to a terrible, tragic story with a whole bunch of innocent people. Being, I'm not sure I would say happy. Uh, I, I'm happy with okay. the way that the, I think I can't think of anything more just than this uh, person uh, dying at the hands of his own bomb uh, while the SWAT team's moving in. So uh, the the bombing does seem to be the bombing wave does seem to be over. Although, as the mayor pointed out, uh, there's every reason to think that there may still be packages out there that this person had had either put into motion. So I, people shouldn't uh, be, be too calm yet. But yeah, that, you know that said, I, calm, I calm's make, an interesting word there, right? Too uh, too uh, too quick to assume yeah. that there's there's no threat. That said, I, I think it's interesting. There there was a lot of uh, media coverage. Obviously, I mean, you all, it's all NPR can talk about. And, and a lot of the tenor of it is like you know Austin gripped with panic. I, I'm curious whether whether what you've perceived. I have seen nothing of that no, sort. I have no. seen no evidence that Austin was gripped with panic. As opposed to say panic from a shortage of tacos. I think then there might be panic, the, right? That, that might well do uh, it. No, I'd say people I thought, were all were all focused on it, and people were yeah, being very very keep, concerned. Keep calm and carry on. I think was actually quite quite a lot of what we were saying. I mean, I, listen, I have a New Yorker stoicism about this stuff, right? There's a line from Rent, I'm a New Yorker, fears my life, which is not <laughs> meant to say, like I walk around constantly in fear, it's meant to say, I have come to accept that yeah. there is a randomness to life that sometimes wreaks tragedy upon the unsuspecting. We live in a city of a million people. Um, you know, that's yeah. a big place. I do think so. It was interesting. I was, you know, one analogy to this this wave of bombings, uh, so many people have pointed to the uh, Beltway Sniper yep. scenario. Yep. And, and that, I think, for very good reasons, that are distinguishable from this case did cause a great deal of fear. And if that's the nature of what had been going on here, I think it would have caused an equal amount of fear here. What I think was going on here is that the initial narrative setting incidents involved the package bombs being delivered to specific residences, Mm -hmm. which sort of naturally led lots of people to assume there was a rhyme or reason to it. There was a pattern and that sort of that that sort of human drive to find a variable that you can distinguish your own vulnerabilities from the person that's been harmed and say, ah, oh, well, that's a problem for someone else, not for me. I think that actually led a lot of people to look at this as a terrible tragedy and very scary, but nothing that necessarily threatened them directly. Now, as this evolved with the, I think it was the third bomb was the tripwire on the sidewalk, um, that actually should have set off you know, more alarm bells probably than it did, but it was the third in the sequence. And there was pretty quickly after that, you know, this bomb that had been shipped 
if this uh, if this bastard had continued to be out there doing this and had switched to dropping these things in public places, maybe on a campus or in a store or something like that, I think you then would have seen a real a real turn. And I think it would have started to cause much more public anxiety than but it, it did. didn't. And I think it's a, it's just a good lesson in I, I think first of all the Austin police were very effective and thorough in their communication as everything was going on mm-hmm. yep. um, in trying to sort of explain what was and wasn't related. So for example, there was an incident at Goodwill yesterday that I think the police were quite clear pretty quickly they did not believe was related yeah, right yeah. to the bombings. Despite I mean, it's, a, it's a city of a million people, right? Roughly, and uh, just counting the the, the core area of Austin, this is a really big place. Yeah. Um, there, there are things that happen. And of course, there's also the risk, and this is the scary part, you know, copycat type activity. Yep. But let's hope we can put this behind us and, and quit having the name of Austin associated with such tragedy. We got a lot of other stuff to talk about. Wow. Um, you know, it's been a quiet week since, it hasn't even been a week. It's been, no, a quiet, it's been a week. It's been a quiet five days. So since... I was worried when we when we dropped an episode last week that we wouldn't have all that much to talk about this oh, week. Oh, ye of little faith. I know. Okay, 2018 keeps on giving. Um, we've got uh, we've got Mueller investigation stuff and military commissions. We've got the FISA court, and we've got the Fifth Circuit. We've, we've got, got Andy McCabe. We've got the Supreme Court. We've got the D.C. Circuit. We've got a vote on the pulling the U.S. out of whatever's going on in Yemen. We've got Cambridge Analytica. Which apparently Oxford's been very insistent has nothing to do with Oxford Analytica. <laughs> yeah, you know, they got me so <laughs> bummed about the confusion there. Uh, we, we've even got a phantom menace out there to talk about. So um, let's dive in. Let's dive in. Let's talk first about some Mueller, Trump, McCabe related set of issues. Yeah. Go. Uh, and so, so you had, Bobby, you had what I thought was a remarkably un Bobby esque tweet. On Friday, what are the qualities? That, was it funny? Is that what made it? It was. Funny? It was cutting. It was. I mean, so so your tweets are always incisive. Oh, they are always you. thorough. They are always substantive. This was a one word like dismissive. Was it was the word shameful or was it disgusting? I can't remember. I, I, that may have been shameful. Shameful. I, I think want that might have been it. Um, when, uh, so in response to the announcement of McKay being fired. Yes. So uh, disgraceful. I'm sorry. Uh, disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. Same difference. Period. Disgraceful. Yeah. Period. Disgraceful. Uh, I feel like that's something I would tweet, and I feel like yeah, it's you're, not you're, something you're you would tweet. You're definitely, you've got a harder edge on, on Twitter. I'm, I usually try pretty hard. To, on Twitter? What? In, in life? I was going to say, I feel, life, I, feel, I feel like folks who have listened to this podcast have a pretty good sense <laughs> of which one of us has a sharper edge, <laughs> at least in their in their outward public face and commentary. That, that's right. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm even more mealy-mouthed in my, my non-public commentary. You are not. No, I was going to say, folks who I, no one, no one would doubt that you have strongly held opinions. You I are would, just far more tactful and proper about reserving them for when people are actually calling for I them. want everybody to get along all the time. Exactly. So and I'm like, it's, and, it's a bug and a feature. And, and, and if I could curse, I would say, F you. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, so, uh, you know, this whole thing, what, what is there to say about this that hasn't already been said a million times? I will simply say that uh, the whatever else may be true about the possible grounds that you could use to justify firing Andy McCabe, I don't think anybody can really claim that that's actually what was going on here, independent of any interest from the White House right. in, in adding to the narrative that the FBI in general is somehow corrupt and politicized from the top down, and therefore anything that later on may come out about 
wrongdoing or or otherwise involving delegitimization of the Trump administration therefore shouldn't be credited. That's so obviously the whole game here. Right. And so everything that goes on like this is at some level disgraceful. Um, it's, in in my view, as you know, uh, you know, I'm trying not to get all fired up about this. <laughs> uh, Started off right today. Yeah, I know. You're going you're gonna, to have to just walk away from the podcast after this. Uh, the, the whole project, of course, is is a, an extremely narrowly self-interested project of delegitimizing a critical, you know, the main federal law enforcement institution as a way of protecting a political flank. And, and I think that's revolting. I think McKay being fired, you know, two days before his uh, his uh, age would allow him to access his pension immediately or instead of, as I now understand it will happen, if he doesn't win in litigation, which is, <laughs> I think he might. Um, he'll have to wait many years or some years uh, before he vests pension. So it's just this sort of, to me, this very kind of bullyish, sort of crass way of sticking it to a particular person in a financially harmful way. And perhaps and perhaps overriding longstanding norms about how these investigations are supposed to go. So so I want to say, I, I we need to see the underlying inspector general report, right? I mean, I think this is, again, a situation where, I mean, Ben and Quinta wrote about this on Friday, right, sure. on Lawfare. Yeah, post ad- admirably cautious and saying, look, let's withhold judgment, right. which I'm not doing. It and is, so I am I find myself in the weird position of going uh, more aggressively No, 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 but I think I, I think one can 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 talk and chew gum on this one on the sa- at the same time. I think it is possible to withhold judgment on whether there were appropriate grounds for disciplining Andy McCabe. Right, based right. upon the, his conduct with regard to the Hillary email investigation, yep. one can withhold judgment on that and still believe yeah. the that race the, to fire that him. The race to birthday. fire him yeah. before his pen. I mean, before his pension first. Uh, so the, it's not just petty, right? It's also, I think, you know, at, it, it could very well be interpreted as as evidence of sort of you know guilt of conscience, right? That you know we want to get him out of the way. Um, yeah. Whereas, whereas I'm not familiar with other contexts where the government has moved so quickly, right, to jump ahead of an investigation to fire the offending officer. Usually, the government's mo is: listen, even if the guy is out of office, right, we can we can create a a public record of his inappropriate conduct. Right. No, it's the race to fire. Yeah. And, and let's underscore here. He he was resigned right. already right. effective once right. he was on he was on what's expired. called he was on what's called terminal leave right yeah. which is when you are leaving office in less time than you have accrued leave right which is why I think this idea that like well you know you had to get him out of there is is it's you know, baloney baloney no, no right, well, so I, 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 they, we're beating a dead horse no, no, here the million dollar question right the the, the only thing that I think is interesting from the sort of forward going perspective here is unlike just about everybody else but see maybe Comey and Sally Yates who has been fired, and especially folks who have been fired or have left in recent weeks. Um, Andy McCabe is talking, right? And he's talking loudly. Well, and I assume, has he filed suit for wrongful termination? I don't know if he has filed suit or if he's going to. Yeah, you have to assume he will. Um, at which point, of course, if he survives motion to dismiss, there are depositions to take. Oh, my goodness. Well, that so, be interesting. All right. Speaking of suits, right, this is a good pivot to two other Trump-related developments. The first is there was a whole lot of talk over the weekend um, about a Mueller red line um, because there was a yet further floating of the possibility that with the firing of McCabe, right, and with the um, firing of Rex Tillerson and with the now rumored impending departure of H.R. McMaster. You get Trump unbound. Trump unbound. And so, you know, Mueller will be next. Um, and two remarkable things happened in response to that. The first is you had, for the first time, 
pretty senior members of the Republican leadership in Congress, including Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader McConnell, actually publicly saying, let Mueller's investigation go forward. Right. It would be bad if you fired Mueller. Yeah, right. We've heard that from other Republican members, but not the leadership. Right, right. So that was a leveling up of... of, of S- signaling this that some right. red line might exist. So that part, good, right? Like drawing yeah. a red line. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the bad. Um, but at, in the same voice saying, oh, it's not necessary to pass these pending bills that would create a mechanism for Mueller to challenge his termination in court. So if they decided to get public and pass these bills, the president's going to veto them. So this is an interesting question. Unless right? you think there's a supermajority. I think it's like the on. Russia sanctions bill. Right. Where if the president veto, so where there will be immense political pressure on the president to not veto the bill because what, you know, his point is that he'll have good cause. Right. Whenever he fires Mueller. There's pressure from people he won't care about. Well, but then, right, a veto could provoke an override. Right. Because yeah. Republicans will then have the Republicans in the House and the Senate will then have to own. Right, whether right. they're going to sustain the veto or yeah. override it. Yeah, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be high theater and it would be high stakes. But, but I just want to say one last thing, right? Critically, I wrote a long post about this on Lawfare on Monday. Critically, the folks who are saying that we shouldn't pass this, like Lindsey Graham, whose name is on one of the bills and is saying it's not necessary, they're not making the arguments that some of our friends in the academy, our more conservative friends in the academy are making, that there are serious constitutional problems with the bill. They're just saying it's not necessary. And what I want to say is I think there is a debate about the constitutionality, I think it is not as strong a debate as some no, of our. A, you you've been really good about explaining to the public what this, these bills are all about, and as I understand it, and you, you're obviously yeah. steeped in it in a way that I'm not. Um, they're pretty carefully designed to avoid the the obvious constitutional objections that a more that what people assume these bills might be would would potentially. So raise. some of it is right. I mean, the independent counsel statute had lots of problems, some of which were just prudential, some of which were constitutional. Right, this has one problem. It's for cause removal. And so the only way that these bills are unconstitutional is if the regulation itself is unconstitutional in protecting Mueller from termination without cause, all the bills do is they make that determination judicially reviewable. The fact that the narrative coming from Lindsey Graham, from Mitch McConnell, from all of these other members is not we have constitutional concerns, it's just that we don't think the bill is necessary, is to me a real problem. Because by the time it is necessary, like, i.e., the day after Mueller is fired, it will be too late. Well, so, you know, they're, they're, these people are steeped in the political environment and are choosing public words carefully every time, especially at the senior leadership level. Most it, of them. For the, the ones that we're talking about now, yeah. they're, they're very carefully choosing what they're willing to say on this, and they've chosen to draw the line around, you right. know, yet, don't fire him. We don't think the bill's necessary. This reflects their ju- – it must reflect their judgment that the right way to handle this at the moment is not to – push too hard. They're, you're, you're dealing with this tiger in a cage. You're, you're poking at him a little bit. You're trying to send in this negative but So, I, so, I want, so they've, they've just made a judgment, I think, that the best way mm-hmm. to deter right now is to say it's a red line, but to also in the same breath say, like, we're not, we're not pushing this legislation forward, but it's a red line. And, and they may be right or wrong about the political calculation, but that may, for all we know, that's actually a very smart calculation as to what's most likely to be effective. So, so I, don't want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. Let me just take the tiger in a cage metaphor one step, right, which is um, there is no cage, right? Yeah, which makes it even more dicey, No, no, right? but this is my problem. So, so if you are the Republicans, right, the question is, do you build the cage, i.e. the legislation, yeah. right, which will 
formally constrain the president's ability to wreck to axe Mueller without good cause, or do you trust that the president is not going to, you know, um, cross the invisible line, right, that you have drawn in the sand? And frankly, with other presidents, I would have understood, even if I didn't agree with, the invisible part of this. How could they have any faith that this president is going to act rationally and responsibly when it comes to the Russian investigation. So I think building the cage is actually a great metaphor for this, right? So what you've got actually, you've got the tiger tamer. Is that, is that, is that our title, episode title? Build building the cage. Build the cage, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, so you're in you're in the, the ring with this tiger and there's no cage yet. You, you wish there was a cage. <laughs> you're talking about how, hey, we're not gonna build a cage on you, tiger, but, um, but don't do this. And you're saying like, it sure would be better to have the cage. T- totally great, but Building the cage requires you walking right up to that tiger, and it's it may bite you while you're doing it. There right? you go. So that's what I, that's what I think their calculation is that it's too dangerous to directly say you're going to build the cage. I, I just think that I just think that listen, why have the so by that logic, this legislation should never have been introduced, right? Because it won't be necessary until it is too late. Um, right, Maybe. and so, but, well, but, but so we're not closing the barn door, not even building a barn circumstances, door. Circumstances, we got a lot of metaphors going Indeed. on. Uh, the circumstances may evolve in a way they decide, like, all right, you know what, we got to go forward with this. What else would have to happen? Well, you know, you don't say that question because God knows what else might <laughs> I mean, I, happen. I can literally think of one event, right, that we haven't had yet between where we are today and directly firing Mueller that could be a trigger, and that's firing sessions. Right. And right. that, yeah, and that, that would certainly be a red flag. And that the day after sessions is fired, maybe both houses pass this legislation. Could be. All right. I mean, I wouldn't um, be shocked. All right. One, so, one last, one last yeah. thing on Trump litigation, just really, yeah, really small thing. Um, the, we don't usually talk about state courts on this podcast, but there's an interesting ruling by the Manhattan Supreme Court yesterday in Summer Zervos's defamation suit against the president. Huh. Um, the the you know I don't want to get into the the messiness of you know the merits of did the president defame you know Summer Zervos back in whatever 2006. The only interesting question for our purposes here is. There was a question raised in that case about whether a sitting president can be sued in state court even for acts that predated his presidency. Clinton versus Jones, 1997 Supreme Court case says a sitting president can be sued in federal court for stuff that happened before he was president, expressly reserved the question of whether the same would apply in state court. The trial judge in Manhattan has now said the same logic of Clinton versus Jones also applies in state court. Interesting Fed court's presidential yeah, well, power so question. Can, what do you think of that? Do you think that there's some sort of federalism-based concept that says the rule ought to be different in states? So I don't, out? and I've actually written a piece for NBC News about this. Um, I tweeted about it yesterday. I actually think that the concerns that Justice Stevens, in his majority opinion, Clinton mm-hmm. Jones, alluded yeah. to, actually are already accounted for by some combination of Clinton versus Jones itself, of the power of the president to appeal any adverse decision against him, right, through the courts, and if he has any kind of federal claim to the Supreme Court, yeah. and the power he has, I think, although this is not well settled, under the federal officer removal statute, to remove the case to federal court if and only if he has a federal law-based defense. 
Yeah, I would think that uh, the the real core interest about disrupting the functioning of the presidency yeah. through distraction and consumption of time and all the rest um, are pretty much equally applicable no matter what the venue is. Right. Why? Right. So the, I, I mean, this is what I wrote about in the NBC piece. Why would the disruption concerns be any different with regard to state litigation versus federal? Yeah. Um, the only thing I would say is the and the concerns about a state court being hostile to the president. Well, listen, state courts, unlike state legislatures and state executive officers, are bound by the supremacy clause. Right, so the supremacy clause literally says state courts have to enforce federal law, anything in their state constitutions notwithstanding. So I have faith here, right, that state courts will do their job, and if some quirky federal problem arises right. to which the New York state courts give inadequate attention, the federal courts can engage. The Supreme Court yeah. or the right. So, yeah. but interesting sort of Fed courts thing. Absolutely. Okay, well, you can teach a whole you can teach a whole law school <sighs> curriculum. Yeah, you know, non-disclosure agreements, for example. Oh uh, my God, we're this is the thing. We're not even going to talk about non-disclosure agreements on this no, podcast today. No, no, no. But there was. I will just flag. There was a great because, because we have a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, yeah, yeah, I signed one. I've never signed one. I don't think. I guess. Uh, I signed one. I had. A, I used to have clearance, so I'm yeah. certainly non-disclosure on that. But anyways, on to on to other things. So um, we've been talking about people. Well, I was going to say speaking of being fired. fired, right? So a quick, real quick, uh, touching base with our ongoing story of the military commissions. This is Nashiri, and this is the, this is uh, the the removal of Harvey Rishikoff. Not Gary just Brown. Nashiri, right? Yeah, right. Well, right. So it's the large, It's the firing of convening authority Harvey Rishkoff and his legal advisor Gary Brown. The um, the judge in the nine eleven case, right? Judge Pohl had um, on the defense. Motion, oh, that's right. You're right. It wasn't right? spat. It was Pohl. It this, was is, Pohl. this is hold my beer. Right. This is hold my beer. So so um, the nine one of the nine eleven defendants or two of the nine eleven defendants had basically sought the uh, dismissal of the charges on the ground of unlawful command influence. Right. Um, by the way, sorry, I'm especially nasal today. Kind of sick. That's okay. It's just a microphone problem. Do you Deeper, deeper voice. My 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 microphone's on the nasal setting today. To which our listeners are like, it's always on the nasal setting. <laughs> All right. So um, Judge Pohl had basically said, I can't decide this unlawful command influence claim that you know Secretary Mattis is trying to sort of screw up this trial um, without knowing why Mattis uh, without why he fired Rishikoff and Gary Brown. And so um, Judge Pohl ordered Mattis to file a declaration stating why these guys were fired on March 18th. Um, or 19th, whatever the Monday right. was. And so we, we, all of us get out our popcorn and we're munching and waiting to read. What and we might all say. we hear, thanks to the indefatigable Carol Rosenberg, um, is that these things were filed because they were filed under seal. But since then, right, yes. they, they've been. By the way, there are competing. Right, they're competing. Mattis files one. Rishikoff and Gary Brown filed. They're competing. Right. Here's right. why we think we were fired. So, so then apparently we're, we're told uh, that they've been unsealed already, which is great by but, Judge Pohl, by Judge who Pohl. said, "Who said? Excuse me, government. Why are these under seal? Well, a why a why are these under seal? B I seal stuff. You don't seal stuff. And so that would lead you to think that so therefore we know what's in them but no nope. because like all things military commission there's now a you know 1 to 15 days or god I thought it's 3 long. weeks Whatever it is, there's this. I think 15 days, maybe business days. Ah, yeah. Anyways, um, transparency, fairness, justice. Review, review for possible classified information in there. Um, so we don't yet know, and that's why this is merely a lightning round check-in. But but, we don't but to say, within the next three weeks, we should have access to these. And my my sense from folks who have seen them is that they tell very different stories. 
Well, and, and there was at least one sort of indirect quote from someone on the defense side who said, well, there's there's not enough information. And that's no surprise. Yeah. I have to assume that yeah. what's in the Mass Declaration is a pretty generalized account and then the of question is, well, preference that, right. for, you know, either a sense of misperformance or underperformance and a preference for other performance. And then the million-dollar question is, will that satisfy Judge Pohl or will, will he insist de- on— Will there be a deposition? That would be awesome. That would be something. All right. Uh, speaking of seals— Right, and I don't mean very, I don't mean the animal. Very good. Okay, so take us away. Friday afternoon, right? Just you're, you know, it's, it's it's Friday afternoon. It's the end of spring break. We're all chilling. We're like having a margarita. Life is good. That's and then literally what I was doing. And then at six o'clock, the FISA Court of Review drops its opinion in the ACLU Mafia access case. Everything only happens on Friday afternoons at close of business. Now that's just the 2018 in a uh, We should just we should just like adjust. It's like in that old. Um, a DuckTales episode where they change the clocks to mess with Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> all right, anyway. <laughs> Those kids. Those kids. Um, so, so what happened here? All right, so just to remind everybody, this is a motion brought by the ACLU and the Mafia Clinic at Yale Law School, basically seeking the publication of all or parts of hitherto classified FISA court opinions. Um, pretty important claim. The core of the claim is that the public has a qualified First Amendment right of access to judicial proceedings, and that that includes FISA court proceedings like these, not an absolute right, but that at least the default should be publication unless you can show need for redaction. Right. And more to the point, like basically they're seeking redacted publication, right? So obviously there will probably always be some stuff. Of course, of course. Um, So just to remind everybody, the the original ruling in the FISA court was that the ACLU and Mafia lacked Article 3 standing, Mm -hmm. um, largely because they just didn't have a claim on the merits. We talked about how we thought that was problematic. The en banc FISA court ruled six to five, basically that we were right. Um, that They didn't put it quite that way, but that would have been a shorter opinion that we could have gotten. Although I have now been referred to as a, quote, prominent legal scholar, unquote, by at least one Fifth Circuit judge in a dissent. Thank you, Judge Prado. Hook him. And then he spelled my name wrong. Um, <laughs> but so <laughs> I, I would I would take the misspelled name. With yeah, the, that, the nice no, no, no. I'd rather have a misspelled name and prominent legal scholar than correctly spelled name and but see. But <laughs> um, All right, so... so uh, the 6-5 on bond court said, listen, this is not a standing issue. This is a merits issue. Uh, taking the allegations the ACLU raises them, they have enough of a claim to have Article Three standing. We should reach this on the merits. The FISA court then certified um, the question to the FISA court of review. And so this is the right. first time the FISA court of review has, quote, answered, unquote, a certified question under the USA right. Freedom Act. Look at, look at that. The system works. It actually did. And yeah. it, it did work pretty quickly. There was an amicus, Laura Donahue, your friend and mine, right, participated as an amicus um, in the FISA court review at their invitation. And we got a pretty quick perfunctory opinion unanimously from the court review saying, listen, they've got standing. Like, this is yeah. this is not hard. Yeah, and, and critically, if I'm correct here, tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. They didn't say this is potentially a good claim. This is no. like the the merits. They said they've got standing. The merits are an entirely different issue. And indeed, the, and indeed, the court review went out of its way to say the the First Amendment right in this context is almost certainly different, right, than yeah. it would be in an ordinary. Which is, non- I think, exactly what we think as well. Of course, it is. Yeah. But but what's interesting, Bobby, is I think I think almost every word right of the court review's decision is correct. I think it's worth noting the government had asked the court of review, even if they. Uh, agree that the ACLU and Mafia had standing to go ahead and reach the merits and decide the issue. Yeah. And the court review didn't. 
Yeah, that's which, interesting. You know, which which I think is is a sign of two things. One, I think it's responsible, right? Like let it percolate the right way. Minimalism. Two, I think it's I think it's the court review basically conceding that the merits are actually kind of hard here. And it not could so, be. It could be. And not so superficially obvious that there's just virtually no First Amendment well, maybe right. The, maybe the panel quickly determined that they didn't all agree on quite how to handle the merits and decide, you know what, let's stay out of it. Let's put it back down to, to Judge Collier or whoever's going to And just it. to be clear, I think that's right. And here's why I think that's right, right? It's a qualified right of public access. I think you and I completely agree that one of the things that qualifies the right is the government's inter- legitimate interest in national security Clearly. secrecy. Yeah. And so it's going to be, I think, more a case-by-case question than a structural question about how to map that right onto these hyper-secret proceedings. It, it does seem like this is, in, unless one is willing to say that there's a, a such a sweeping national security ob- objection to this entire uh, line of thinking, that's going to have to be resolved case by case. And what that means, I suppose, is that we're in for a new era going forward of sort of perpetual litigation by, by, by ACLU, Mafia, and other interest groups trying to get whatever comes down the pipe, get it released. Maybe, unless, right, unless the FISA court's response is to actually take seriously one of the reform proposals in the USA Freedom Act, which is to have more of a default presumption in favor of publication, mitigating the need for case-by-case adjudication of whether something that is secret ought to be out in the public. Well, it's kind of interesting, right? So so this pressure to do this is already there. The suggestion they're supposed to do it is already there. So The rules allow them to do it. So how do you assess whether it's been, is the idea that it hasn't been implemented in good faith or it hasn't been implemented with enough gusto or speed? That's an interesting question, and I'm really glad that that is now the question we're going to be asking, right? Like, this litigation, I think, has actually now got us to the right place. So the court's going to decide whether it has been acting with sufficient gusto and speed or... not as such, but just, you know, I I don't think they'll ever say that directly. But but we might see a subtle shift in, you know, disposition going forward. Yeah, it might have a marginal impact. And I'm sure the the strategy behind the litigation was, look, we're probably not going to win some sweeping great victory here, but maybe we can put a little more pressure. Exactly. Like the Charlie Savage, um, New York Times FOIA request, you know, not FOIA request, uh, sort of, you know, discretionary reminder to the FISA court that if they wanted to release part of like the Carter Page application, they could. Um, Now, the only, this all assumes, of course, that the government does not avail itself of the opportunity to now re- seek review yeah. of this decision in the I Supreme Court. I think we both court. agree that would go nowhere. Um, they're, they're not going to do it. No. Um, all right. Um, by the way, just really quickly, speaking of things the government chose not to push the Supreme Court to handle, um, side note, on Monday, the Supreme Court actually denied cert in a case we haven't really talked about. Um, it's called, I think, Arizona or Brewer versus like Arizona Dreamers Coalition. This was actually a, a, a sort of case indirectly raising the, the legal merits of DACA, right, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that, you know, of course, is behind all of the current fighting over the rescission of DACA by the Trump administration. Um, the government basically, so uh, Governor Brewer had appealed an adverse Ninth Circuit ruling to the Supreme Court, and the government actually recommended that the court not take her case. Um, I think because the government isn't as confident in uh some public statements about the unconstitutionality of DACA itself, mm-hmm. as maybe some members of the government are. So the Supreme Court on Monday denied. End of story on that note, at least for now. Interesting. All right. Well, I feel like there's this building steam within the Supreme Court to have a very, very busy, I guess, April, May, and June oh, because and there's next so fall. much that has not dropped And, and yet. next fall. Um, all right. Um, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, yesterday, and speaking of prominent legal scholar Stephen with the V. I. Vladek, um, incited. on remand, the en banc Fifth Circuit 
handed down his decision in Hernandez versus Mesa. A show, we, a case we've talked about on the show many times. A case we've talked about many times. A case in which I should say I was co-counsel to the petitioners, um, which is a, basically, this is a case arising out of the allegedly unprovoked cross-border shooting of a unarmed Mexican national um, by a U.S. Border Patrol agent who was standing in um, Texas. The Mexican national was standing on Mexican soil. Yeah, it, sa- it sounds like, you know, a final exam type hypothetical. Oh. And uh, the Supreme Court had so it went up to the Supreme back. Court, right? Yeah. So, so the Fifth Circuit um, sort of it, the case at its core raises this fascinating merits question about what constitutional rights, if any, Hernandez had in that circumstance, given he right. didn't have prior substantial voluntary connections to the United States. Right. Classic edge case fact pattern. Yeah. Um, the Fifth Circuit sort of messed around with it for a while. Eventually, the en banc Fifth Circuit unanimously held that they could avoid all of that by just saying Agent Mesa was entitled to qualified immunity. Um, the Supreme Court last June uh, unanimously reversed the Fifth Circuit on the qualified immunity point, basically because at the time Agent Mesa pulled the trigger, he didn't know that Hernandez was a Mexican national. He therefore didn't know that the person he was shooting at might not have had constitutional rights. And the Supreme Court's qualified immunity law says it's the law, it's what the guy knows when he pulls the trigger that matters. Um, but the court also said, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, Fifth yeah. Circuit, don't worry, because we've just decided Ziegler versus Abbasi, which basically puts the kibosh on what are called Bivens claims, right? That is to say, we have just called into question whether there's even a cause of action for damages in this case. So therefore, even if the court were to assume arguendo that the non-citizen might have had some degree of due process right to life that was implicated here, couldn't sue for it. Right. And so um, the the en banc Fifth Circuit yesterday, by a vote of, I think, 13 to 2, if my math is right, it might have been 12 to 1 to 2, depending upon how you count Judge Haynes, um, got the message yep. and said, ah, no Bivens. Yeah. So, the, and of course, there will be a cert petition, but it seems highly unlikely that will go anywhere. No, no. I mean, I mean, I, I, this, they were this following is, the recipe. I think they were following. So listen, I folks know exactly, I think, how I feel about Abbasi and about just how problematic it is. Um, I have a. I think Hernandez shows why Abbasi is so problematic. I do not think I might get in trouble for saying this. I do not think it is an unfaithful application of Abbasi. No, it seems like it seems like far from being an unfaithful application. It is for both the proponents and defender or opponents of the Abbasi rule. This is an example of what the consequences were predicted to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, you could still say this case is unique because of the of the sort of cross border bizarre facts. Right. There are cases sort of. Far raising far less sensational facts that I think are even better examples of just how bad Abbasi is because Abbasi is affecting the normal cases as well as the abnormal cases. Yeah. But I think this is probably the end of the so road. So that's the end of the road for that. I agree. Now, um, case there's a— Speaking d- of long-shot legal arguments— <laughs> You know, I think— I, we Our should, segues today are unlocked. We should just say, speaking of whether it's a segue or not. So speaking of our next item on the list, but it actually <laughs> is— yeah. <laughs> Speaking of cases, mm. uh, we got Al Alwi was argued— and uh, now we don't have the transcript, and but we've we've heard bits and pieces about how the argument went. This is uh, this is a case that I at least uh, think has very little prospect of success. Um, but it's still you never know. Um, we we've got a Guantanamo detainee uh, who had been recommended for transfer to Saudi Arabia, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, based on a periodic review board meeting that took place, uh, a review that took place at the, sort of the tail end of the Obama administration. Um, and there's basically, t- it, correct me if I'm wrong, two prongs to the claim here. 
uh, a, a claim that, look, the PRB recommended release, the Trump administration is now basically welching on that or, or not following through on it. That's wrong. We The court should order the release of this individual to validate the PRB's outcome or to act on it. And then secondly, anyways, uh, the original detention authority has expired on a sort of Hamdi-based theory that the armed conflict in Afghanistan has has evolved and changed and gone on so long and is no longer actually a qualifying armed conflict, and therefore there's no longer a law of war detention authority. Um, so I think I've made in previous episodes my views on both these <laughs> clear, which is that uh, the PRB entire system by its own terms is clearly not binding on the president, doesn't compel the president and the executive yeah. branch to fall through on what the PRB recommends. It's not legally binding. Um, and secondly, that the armed conflict, if anything, is is heating up in Afghanistan, certainly not over and done with. So I agree. I, I want to try to take a shot at distinguishing what I take to be the core argument in Al-Alwi from the core argument in the CCR 11 detainee case, because I think the difference might help to illustrate why I actually think one is stronger than the other. Um, in Al-Alwi... I actually think that when pressed, the and, and I want to see the transcript, but at least my understanding is that the position of the detainee's lawyers, um, you know, Ramzi Qasim teaches at CUNY, um, is not that the war is over, right? It's that um, the sort of Justice O'Connor, that understanding may unravel language from Hamdi is increasingly becoming actualized, right? That that the the courts have to reassess whether there really is such a thing as indefinite, to this degree, detention in the context of a NIAC, such as the non-international armed conflict between the U.S. and al-Qaeda. Um, and so I don't I don't take the position in Al-Awi to be that the facts on the ground mean the war is over and detention authorities expired. I take it to be, you know, detention authority no longer runs to the end of hostilities. Um, and I think, you know, you and I are both skeptical, not, not, that, not of the sort of emotional appeal of that argument, but that a court's going to agree. Oh, I, I'm definitely skeptical, and I, and I think and especially it, this panel. I think it would. I think it's just it's just not correct. If the uh, premise is that there is still a state of armed conflict mm-hmm. going on in Afghanistan, that, but that nonetheless, just because it's been so long, therefore the traditional notion that you can detain uh, the enemy combatants for the duration of hostilities has to drop out. I think that, that would require a, a real innovation in law. That would require an act of judicial lawmaking. If you read it, would. if you read it into the international laws of, if you read it into 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 LOAC, the where the eleven detainee petition I think is somewhat different, is I take the gravamen of their claim to be that, in fact, that constraint doesn't have to come from international law. It comes from the Due Process Clause. Now, again, folks might think that that argument is unconvincing for multiple reasons. One, maybe the Due Process Clause categorically doesn't apply to the Guantanamo detainees. That's certainly, at least currently, the law of the D.C. Circuit, right, Uh which is a problem, um, depending upon how you read Kiemba. Um, Two, assuming it applies, there's no freestanding substantive due process right to be free from military detention when there is some predicate determination that you're properly detained, right? Right. They may end up in the same place. I think they are actually slightly different arguments. One is that there's no authority under international law for this kind of truly indefinite detention. The other is there is a built-in constraint in U.S. law. It's uh, it's clearly two different doctrinal fonts. Yeah. I think it would require just about as much legal creativity on the part of a judge to— 
to develop doctrine under the due process clause that that creates, especially for non-citizens captured overseas in a combat zone. So, so, um, so I basically agree, but the, but then let me ask you just this question, and I don't mean this as a as a yeah. hostile question. So when O'Connor says that understanding may unravel, I mean this is a tantalizingly yeah. opaque Delphic proclamation, right? Contrasted with her, twenty five years from now we won't need affirmative action anymore. <laughs> Right, there is a certain parallel, right? Uh, and they're and they're, and they're, years now, and they're and they're contemporaneous, right? Yeah. I mean, Greta was 03, yeah, yeah, was 04. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, what is that understanding may unravel? What to you does that mean from the perspective of litigation? Right. So I, I think I always understood her to have meant that uh, if the circumstances between the United States and the Taliban. Uh, evolved from a situation which it was then, which involved a you know pretty obvious case of armed conflict, however one characterizes it, uh, to a circumstance that gradually changes, becomes different, and at some point ceases to be properly characterized as armed conflict. Then, by definition, the 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 linchpin of her holding had been the law of armed conflict brings with it detention authority for the duration of hostilities. But that we doesn't have to work, watch this closely. Right. That doesn't work can, once the facts on the ground change dramatically. In, in, but specifically, change in a way that leads you to no longer properly characterize it as armed conflict. Okay. If it's still armed conflict, it's still armed conflict. But if it's not, it's not. And and that's sort of a. <laughs> it sounds binary, and we all appreciate that it's a spectrum. And I think yeah. that's why she chose the Delphic language because yeah. she appreciates that the exactly how you say when it is and when it isn't, that's not something you can objectively say changed on from Monday to Tuesday because we had this many fewer incidents. Oh, no, listen, you, as, as folks know, I agree with you on that point, right? Yeah. I just, I am one who thinks that, you know, at some point that understanding may unravel is meant to be a judicial command, right? A, a sort of a, a, a message to courts and not just to the government. Oh, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that, look, I think you can go back to the prize cases and find that the, the courts... The prize cases! I love citing the prize cases. You've you've got a role for courts here in characterizing and, and attaching, deciding which doctrinal labels is the appropriate one and, here. And to me, actually, that is the most important thing the D.C. Circuit's going to decide in Al-Awi. So this panel, right, Garland, Henderson, Griffith, not exactly a panel that's going to be adventurous. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I will just say really quickly, what's going to be most interesting about this decision, whenever it comes out, is what the panel says, not about the merits, but about the role of the courts in the first place. Because we've talked about this before, you know, there's a longstanding view held by some in the executive branch that the courts have no role to play, right, in lit- in, in resolving sort of end-of-war timing questions. Um Al-Awi, the government's position is not that. The government's position is, listen, we're going to win, right? So rule for us. And I think that, you know, they're right, but Al-Awi is going to be a precedent that can now be pointed to say, look, courts have a role to play, even when that role is, no, 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 there's still a war. There's still a war. And, you know, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be deference. To of the, course. It, back, there, to, back to... The, the, to, me, to me, that's the right way to think about these yep. things. You don't say that the courts have no role. You say that insofar as the legal determination entails resolution of questions of fact, let alone questions of policy, um, there's going to be, and, and should be, a thumb on the scale of the factual resolutions and determinations that the executive branch has made vis-a-vis the nature of the facts on the ground. Now, I'm not talking about whether no, no, John no. Doe was a detainee no, no, or did just, this or that. Just, I mean, is is there a state of combat operations going on there? Yes. And so and so what, what I think we're both looking for in this opinion is not the result, because I think that's relatively yeah. preordained. Yeah. It's how the court describes what it's doing. That will be very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And including the possibility they may decide to pointedly not comment on that. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Um, speaking of um, ending hostilities. Yeah, that, that, that's actually a relevant segue. Listen, I'm, I'm on the segue thing today, okay? Senate Joint Resolution 54, the Yemen Resolution. Uh, 
perfectly timed for the visit to Washington of MBS, uh, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed uh, bin Salman, who has been really shaking up uh, Saudi society. Um, wow, what, shaking up. There's That's our euphemism for today, huh? Yeah, 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 I think it's a fair description. He's definitely been uh, roiling the waves. Now, he is closely associated with the Saudi uh, military intervention in Yemen. And so right when he's here, you get the Senate, um, you get the Senate debating the Yemen war powers sort of themed withdrawal resolution. Steve, what was the result? So the Senate voted to table the motion. There was a motion to discharge. I am not a parliamentarian, but I gather that was a procedural step to try to force a sort of full vote on the matter. Um, and the Senate voted 55 to 44 um, to table it, basically to, to, to make it go away. So it stays in committee, which is tantamount to saying that it, it's not going to go forward to the full Senate, or is saying it's not going forward to the full Senate. So this is dead unless and until someone later on musters the political uh, coalition necessary to spring it out. And, and just really again. quickly, I mean, you hear 55-44, you assume that that means just about party line. No, no, this is a bipartisan deal. Well, so so five Republican senators voted against, that is to say, voted like yeah, pro-resolution, or at least pro-bringing it forward. Um, senators Collins, Danes, Lee, Moran, um, and who was the fifth? Uh, Rand, Rand Paul. Paul. Of course. I forget no, Rand look, Paul. look the, the libertarian kind of... You know, more, more. Uh, well, Susan Collins is not no, a libertarian. No, I, I was going to say the libertarians like Lee and Paul were and the, obviously like going to vote for this, and you get some centrists in it, which yeah. isn't isn't something that I would have necessarily predicted. No, Danes is interesting, right? I wasn't expecting him. And then ten Democratic senators voted for. Right, so uh, Chris Coons, Catherine Cortez Masto, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heitkamp, Doug Jones, Joe Manchin, Bob Menendez, Bill Nelson, Jack Green, Sheldon Whitehouse. That's interesting. Um, three or four of those votes, I think, are people who are running for re-election. Um, and the others are, are surprising. Well, and so you also have to factor in that as the votes become clear, as the whip counts right. become public, people understand like, okay, so this isn't going to forward, go forward. So I can either safely vote right. with the majority on this or I can safely vote against the majority on this. Right. There are five Dems it's, who might have just— It's very hard to know if it was actually a close call. Yep. It's very hard to know what the actual numbers might have been and where some of those people might have But for that. now, this is probably the end of the, the thing. Which doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. All right. Um, speaking of, well— th- Things not end. I guess yeah. Speaking of things ending, um, Facebook's relationship with Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> so uh, the first thing to say about the Cambridge Analytica Facebook uh, fiasco is that the very best thing I've seen written about this is a really nice post that Andrew Woods, our yep. friend, yep. Uh, posted at Lawfare. Uh, go find it. <laughs> um, it. It's tempting just to kind of recap everything he said, but I want people to go read it. He's got a really nice kind of dispassionate walkthrough of like, you want to know the legal issues? Here's who could sue who. Um, I'm not sure what we want to emphasize. What do you think is worth talking about? Well, so I I just add to Andrew's post. There's also Channel 4, the British television enterprise, has these fantastic videos about Cambridge Analytica that I think are quite revealing. Oh, that's interesting. Of exactly what it was doing. Um, Listen, I I think there's a much larger conversation about data privacy and data manipulation here. Um, And, you know, that's probably more your bailiwick than mine. Um, I'll just say, like, you know, I feel like there is a broader... If this were, if this, if there were a way to extricate this from the politics of the moment, this would have been a huge scandal on Capitol Hill, right? Like I think, I think you would see hearings, like like you know, a dog dies in an overhead bin on United, and there's legislation introduced the next day, right? <laughs> there is massive, massive, you know, scandal with this huge corporation, and Congress is largely silent because I think it's so infected with the Russia investigation. So I think it's almost the reverse. I think ah! that the only reason. 
that this is getting the only reason it's really gotten the momentum that it has and has been treated as the scandal that is being treated as is precisely because of the tie-in to all of that. And had it instead been, um, hey, there's okay. First, let me back up and explain for listeners who have not followed closely exactly what went down here. Yeah, um, people have Facebook encourages app developers to create all kinds of tools that can be plugged into the the Facebook system one in so for example you get these super annoying hey click here for this <laughs> quiz and and maybe you've wondered like you know why is somebody bother making that uh you know that can't possibly be you know remunerative for them well it is because what what the whole game for some app developers is is to get you to click yes to play a game to take a quiz to to do this or that not so that they can directly engage you in the app they've created but rather so that you will accept the terms of services or accept the terms of accessing that app which through uh, the rules of Facebook allow the app developer to then harvest data from you right and critically here also, uh, you know, you, you sometimes see this thing, um, you know, this, this app would like to access your contact files um, or something like that. Also access data about people in your friend network. And so there's this magnification effect. So if Steve clicks in there, I don't know how many Facebook friends you've got, but it's going to pull in a ton of people. 65? Um, yeah, there's 65,000 probably. Mm. So anyways, um, what you had here was a, uh, a Cambridge University uh, mm-hmm. uh, ostensible academic research who had ginned up this this quiz, I think it was like a personality quiz or some nonsense. Um, and everyone who decided to play ball with that quiz when it showed up on Facebook um, agreed to give access with probably in most cases not realizing it or agreeing to give access under the terms of service to their data, to the to that researcher and friend data. And then so he ends up with this big trove of data. And this is all, here's the key to the story. This is all entirely in accordance with how Facebook's economic uh, model works. This is all by design. They've changed it since then. Since then, they've removed the ability for your consent, Steve, to also allow the researcher or the <coughs> app developer to then access data on your friend network. So let's let's acknowledge that. But anyways, at the time, that wasn't the case. And so uh, this particular individual did gather the huge amount of information. Under the terms of the uh, agreement that app developers would uh, have with Facebook at that time, there's language that depending on how you read it, would arguably forbid that person from turning over that data to someone else, at least if they are a, quote, data broker. And there's a lot of language like that about who you can't give it to. It's not sweeping. It doesn't just say you can't give this data to anyone else. It's kind of targeted. So there's going to be a question about whether or not he breached his uh, contract uh, terms with Facebook. That's something that Facebook has suggested he did, but no doubt he'll resist that. Point is, he turned it over to... Uh, Cambridge Analytica, which is this, you know, this entity associated with Steve Bannon, which was doing work for the Trump campaign and wanted this data so they could build advertising around it. Now, people are going nuts talking about this, like this incredible data breach and all the rest. Um, I I think it's fair to say that uh, we should avoid the breach language because that has a connotation of an information security violation where there was some kind of hack. Whereas this was actually the plan. No, this, this is all in accordance with the business model. And so this is a story, you hear a lot about the the social media platforms collecting tons of information and data, and shouldn't you be worried about this? And a lot of times people say, I'm, I'm worried about the government, but not so much about the social media platforms. Uh, certainly in Europe, you have more concern than you have in the United States typically. But here we finally got a front page, above the fold type story where people do seem alarmed. But I think it's only because it ends up in the, it, it ends up tying into the sort of the Bannon Trump election theme. Um, now, whether this was really an important source of data that really mattered in 
any way for the election, I think, is, is yet to be in any way shown. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. What it is, what the whole story really is, is a moment for the American audience, which normally doesn't get real focused on data privacy vis-a-vis the private sector, because we like all the free things we get in return, like Facebook and Twitter, and we only get real bent out of shape about government data collection. Um, it's a moment to realize, like, well, here's a concrete example that will really bother some people, but not others, but some people, about what it means for your data to be out there and then contracted away and handed over to other other entities. Um, again, I think if you take the Trump angle out of it, I think people still wouldn't care all that much. Um, and, and it's worth repeating, there is so much of this that is entirely in accordance with everything but handing it over to Cambridge Analytica. But the harvesting of it all, way yeah. beyond what you would have expected, is entirely in accordance with the business model. So I, I agree with that. I think I think there is a widespread lack of understanding on the part of folks who don't do this for a living of exactly what that business model looks like on the ground. Well, right? and, here's, and so, here's the million-dollar question. Do you think people, if they really – by dint of this incident or otherwise, begin to really appreciate just how much data they surrender and how difficult it is to alter privacy settings to try to cabin that. If, uh, you know, one possibility is that people say, you know what, that's right, we got to end this model. There's all this talk about the threat to Facebook's model um, and, and switch to something else. Well, that's going to have to be some kind of fee-based service if it's really going to be scalable and be anything like what you've got now. It'll, yeah. be the, it'll be the end of these media platforms as we know them. So I, I guess, the, but but I think, I, I mean, it's a conversation we ought to have because I think what, what folks may not, the, the two and two that may not get added together is the data harvesting as a mechanism for then promoting manipulated targeting. Right and sort of how manipulated targeting has more than just consumer-oriented consequences. We we think about this in the context of you know oh I was just talking about going to Hawaii and all of a sudden there are ads on my email and my phone yeah, yeah, for Hawaii yeah. and like we noticed that oh I we're piqued by that like I get all these all these guitar ads all over exactly. my Washington Post page right. from a search I ran on Craigslist like three weeks earlier. Right, Karen and I are talking about like refinance in our house and it's like all of a sudden you know um, right. because I probably have the microphone enabled in a couple of apps right. on my phone. The, there's just, I think, is something that folks are reacting to differently with regard to harvesting this data for the purpose of manipulating our sort of right. private Oops. consumer choices. I can almost hear Facebook screaming, like, we didn't want anyone to do that right. with it. We for, had well, a contractual bleh. limitation. Yeah. Um, versus harvesting the data to manipulate public policy vis-a-vis elections, right? right. And and. Those may not. Those may just be differences of degree from the perspective of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Those may feel very much like differences in kind to the people out there. So I think that at the end of the day, this is going to run up against the problem that the types of solutions that would address this particular problem, which is to say, uh, switching to by law compelling all the social media platforms to switch to an opt-in model that really clearly makes it cumbersome and clear when an app or other any entity working through Facebook or Twitter that's trying to get your data, you're going to have to be presented a clear choice to say, yes, I want to allow that, right. or, or no, I don't. If we switch to that model, it's going to badly disrupt the economic foundations. You know, Twitter's already very shaky economically. Facebook, much less so. They've got more bandwidth to absorb that. But I think we're going to find that as soon as it becomes clear that you might just not have these services in the same way anymore, I think the appetite for 
uh, putting a stop to this will will run out pretty quickly. All right. Do you want to say a couple quick words about the Phantom Secure prosecution? Oh, we must. I'm so fascinated by this, and I'm really is, is there is there a Jar Jar Binks reference coming? I I will not. That is he who must not be named, right. uh, sir. Uh, Misa, think you no, onto something? No, no, don't do it. All right. So I did a post yesterday about a somewhat little noticed indictment that I think is incredibly interesting. And actually, I was a little surprised the post didn't really catch fire much. Uh, I thought maybe there would be a lot more attention to it. This because it pertains to going dark, and that's not just my characterization. That was the explicit characterization of the FBI in touting the indictment. So what's going on here is this: Phantom Secure is a Canadian company that is designed from the ground up to create. Uh, they, what they do is they get blackberries, they alter them, and connect them up with proprietary uh, a proprietary communications network that uh, you have to be vetted and recommended by an existing client of the company to be accepted into it. Once you're in, you've got a, a combination of really good encryption on a dedicated device and service from the company that includes, among other things, the ability, as soon as you kind of get get in touch with them and say the magic word, they will remotely wipe all data from your device. They also don't even want to know your name, for your real name. It's all anonymized. Um, all of this sounds like, from one perspective, sort of like a, a privacy dream service. Wow, perfectly secure or almost perfectly secure communications. No ability for anyone, government or otherwise, to ever get access to your data, metadata, you name it, at least from the company and from the device. Uh, but the whole thing in this particular instance, according to the government, was designed from the ground up specifically to facilitate crime and that the entire marketing structure was to market this to criminals. This isn't some, this isn't some libertarian's dream. Right. This was a criminal's dream. And so uh, there was a multinational effort to, uh, to kind of swoop in earlier this month gain access to information, and then arrest <coughs> arrest the, the chief executive officer, Vincent Ramos, who was found in Washington State. So he's he's now been indicted, along with four as yet unapprehended uh, co-conspirators. And this whole thing's being touted very loudly. Now, here's, here's the key thing. Here's how the FBI's uh, statement describes the significance of the case. Quote, this case is the first time that the U.S. government has targeted a company and its leaders for assisting a criminal organization by providing them with the technology to, quote, go dark, with a link to going dark stuff on the words go dark, or evade law enforcement's detection of their crimes, close quote. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not remotely suggesting that there's some reason to think that DOJ and FBI think that the same model could be brought to bear to a mainstream communications platform uh, device or software uh, such as Apple. Um, it's obvious how you would distinguish those. There's absolutely no reason. It's all about the mens rea, and there's absolutely no reason to think that notwithstanding that criminals can and do use all devices and all communication platforms, that you could somehow make a plausible case, or the government would want to make a plausible case, that Apple or some other significant common provider like that is trying to assist uh, the Sinaloa cartel in mm -hmm. its international mm -hmm. narcotics trafficking uh, activities. But there's a spectrum of entities out there that lie between Apple on one end and what appears to be true about Phantom Secure on the other end. And in that space, you're going to have any number of entities, including a lot of startups and smaller companies, that are very much framed not as, hey, criminals, don't you want to go to VillainCon? Use this phone to you know connect with people who are also criminals uh, that will have all the right things that will sound just libertarian and, and privacy-focused in their descriptions. And yet, 
may come to know full well that in fact the bulk of or a lot of their their uh, customers are using this explicitly because of criminal activity and there will be edge cases there are bound to be edge cases that emerge there'll be a whole spectrum of fact patterns and the interesting question is how aggressive will doj doj be in taking this model which was a rico conspiracy indictment where you know one of the elements was obstruction of justice conspiring to aid and abet the obstruction of justice um Will we see another such case? The fact that FBI is touting this as as the first time we're targeting someone with the intentional use of technology to go dark for criminals yeah. suggests this won't be the last time no, either. No. So I guess my bottom line is uh, check out my post on Fantasy. I was going to say, my bottom line is read Bobby's post. Yeah, and, and but watch this space. Yeah. I'll try to watch it too. Yeah. All right, um, we are super out of time. Although, even though we're super out of time, I want to read one thing that's coming over the wires while I've been talking. Oh, my God. What but no, relevant, it, it's not a new news. It's relevant to what we're talking about. So we were talking about, like, why is it that Republicans are drawing a red line for Mueller but not pass legislation? So Greg Sargent, who writes the, you know, I think very good and, and popular Plumb Lion blog, right? I'm watching yep. post. Um, Greg has an interview with Bob Corker. Ah, that guy. Corker. Um, and what Corker said, I want to read this quote um, about why his colleagues in the Republican caucus are reluctant to pass legislation. Remarkably, it has nothing to do with Morrison versus Olson being wrongly decided. Here's the quote The president is. As you know, you've seen his numbers among the Republican base. It's very strong. It's more than strong. It's tribal in nature, said Corker. Quote, people who tell me, comma, who are out on trail, comma, say, look, people don't ask about issues anymore. They don't care about issues. They want to know if you're with Trump or not, period. Is that in direct response to the question, why aren't you supporting this, yes. this legislation? Yes. Yeah, well, that's an awfully honest answer, and it's very disturbing. I mean, so so kudos to Corker for saying the quiet part out loud. Um, yeah. But, you know, I just want to be clear. Listen, I understand that. Let's drop the canard that this is about legal and policy objections to legislation, and let's just own it that this is about not crossing a president because you fear retribution from your base. It's, it's partly that, but it's also connected. And it's not actually that easy to distinguish it from this tiger analogy we were working yep, earlier. That's the tiger. It's not. So there's there's sort of the, the the cowardly perspective on it where you're just afraid you're going to suffer electorally. Clearly, that obviously that looms large over all politicians. Crouching tiger, hidden Mueller. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> that's terrible. Um, but it's not unrelated to the idea that what they also are trying to be mindful of is not precipitating harmful responses from Trump himself, yep. yeah. supported and driven by that by that base. All right, um, I got to drop here in a second. So let's close with some quick frivolity. We were asked, "What are we doing this summer?" Yeah, we were asked, "What are you What are you guys up to this well, summer?" Well, obviously, we're, we're recording so. the podcast. Yeah, the podcast certainly does not go on. It, it never goes on vacation, really. Neither rain nor sleet nor I don't know. Package bombing uh, or heat waves. Heat waves. All right. So, Bobby, really quickly, what what do you have on tap for the summer? So, the most important project for me is one I've been working on for many years. When I'm able to cobble, cobble together the time to work on it, which is hard, but I've been writing a book on the uh, sort of the long lens legal history of uh, how law in many different forms regulates the ability of governments to use lethal force or deprivation of liberty in response to national security concerns. And so the idea of the book, the conceit of the book is we've had, you know, the decade and a half of close and, and more of close analysis of those kinds of issues post 9-11. Where were we the day before 9-11 and how did we get there? And believe it or not, the book, Steve, the, the book begins in the late Roman Empire. 
And it, cool. It, 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 I love that stuff. I went way down the rabbit hole. If you've ever kind of wondered about anything on the timeline between, let's say, the, the 300s on to uh, t- the year 2000, this is the book for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it weaves together, it weaves together a, a, a very particularized and, and duct- narrowly focused history of a slice of the law of war. And the eventual emergence of human rights law, uh, the eventual development of, of habeas concepts mm-hmm. in, in England, but then later in how it's carried over into the United States. And it tries to show how these things all come together. And, and they were coming together in ways that was exposing the ambiguities and the lacunae and the, and the conflicts well before 9-11. And it was, it was pretty clear for a long time, and indeed had already become a concrete problem, that terrorism by non-state actors was going to be a flashpoint for causing those frictions to really emerge. Wow. Um, you're going to have a much more interesting summer than I'm going to have. What are you going to be doing? Uh, I'm going to be changing a lot of diapers because we, <laughs> we, are, we are having a baby. Woo-hoo! Um, on or before 7 a.m. on June 18th, um, there will be uh, Vladik baby number two. That is awesome. Uh, girl number two. Yes! Although, if you count my wife and our pug, actually, I will now, I will, I will now be outnumbered four to one. That's, that's uh, similar in my house. Um, but I, you know, I, I believe both sort of in theory and in this case in practice, since Karen's paid by the hour and I'm not, um, that I have an especial responsibility to be primary caregiver for at least a large chunk of this time. So I will try to obviously spend some time writing about, you know, I suspect we'll have some things to write about. Yeah, we will. There, there might be a Supreme Court decision in, you know, this Dalmazi case I might have some things to say about. Um, but but first and foremost, baby girl Vladik. That's your priorities in the right place. I know you to be already a great dad. You're going to be an even more awesome dad with more kids to be awesome too. Well, I will certainly be spending more of my time being a dad. Well, and, and my daughters will be hopefully spending some time springing you, you and Karen. So I was going to say, go, you know, uh, I need the, I need Riley to just you know get there faster because we'll be we'll be ready for some prime time babysitting. My, my, I've got a, I've got a whole crew of babysitters and they're awesome. So you you will be freed from time to time. All right. Well, with our with our babysitting services fully vetted, um, <laughs> you know, I, I always sign off by saying. Stay safe out there, and and this week, I really mean it. Stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.